You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So the book of Revelation, we have done the first five seals as we see this amazing picture in the book of Christ, the slain lamb, standing, coming over to the Ancient of Days, taking that sealed scroll, and he is the only one worthy to start breaking the seals on this scroll. And as we've seen this happen, we've seen corresponding on the earth a number of different judgments. This is the final period of earth's history of this age. This is how Christ comes to take back his land and his kingdom from those who are usurping it and ultimately set up his millennial kingdom. This is what the book of Revelation is about and we are working our way through it. Now, we're not going to do huge amounts of verses today because we're going to get into a few theological details. So it's, it's going to be quite an in-depth one today, simply because if you are the sort of person who reads in commentaries of Revelation and, and knows a bit about the, the eschatology, that is the study of end times, you'll know that this issue with the sixth seal, there's a lot of ramifications that come from this, a lot of different views and understandings of it, and I want to spend a bit of time just dealing, dealing with a few of them. So if, if, if you like to nerd out on stuff like that, hopefully you'll get something from this, and I'm sure there'll be something for everyone else if you don't like that stuff anyway. So we are in, uh, in Revelation chapter 6. Now before we get into that, let me just ask you, if I said it's 100 seconds to midnight, would anyone get that reference? Does anyone understand what we mean by that? 100 seconds to midnight. Now in 1945, Einstein and the other scientists who were involved in the Manhattan Project, uh, making the first atomic bomb. After they'd done that, they put together a group called the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, obviously concerned about the ramifications of their work uh, in the world. They put together this group called the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, who 12 years later came up with what they call the Doomsday Clock. That's where the reference comes from. The Doomsday Clock is still a thing that happens today. You can follow it on every social media account. You can follow it on the news. They do yearly announcements of the state of the world. Or from their own website, they say that the Doomsday Clock was thus named using the imagery of the apocalypse. The midnight, that's the, the phrase that they're using there. And then they combine that with the contemporary idiom of nuclear explosion, which is the countdown to zero. You've probably seen that, DEFCON 1 and all these different things that you have in movies, a countdown to zero, which is going to be the apocalypse as far as they know it. This clock has become a universally recognised indicator of the world's vulnerability to catastrophe from nuclear weapons, obviously. They also include climate change and disruptive technologies of other domains under this now. In January 22, on the 20th, they released their statement for this year where they reset the clock and they do a big presentation for it. And they reset the clock at 100 seconds to midnight. Now that is the closest it's ever been set to the apocalypse by, by these people. I think it was also the same last year, but they haven't moved it this year. So they've, they always put out a statement justifying their decision. And it reads like this. I'll give you a few highlights of it. So it starts off, it's very dramatic. Two, leaders and citizens of the world. RE, at doom's doorstep. It is 100 seconds to midnight, January the 20th, 2022. And then they have a preamble. The first line of the preamble pretty much, if, you, if you're sensitive to these things, pretty much tells you where they're coming from. Listen to this. Last year's leadership change in the United States provided hope that what seemed like a global race towards catastrophe might be halted. 
yeah, Trump was going to cause the apocalypse, what, he said, what they're saying there, and Biden, the Messiah, has averted that. That's ultimately what they're saying. And if you read the whole document, it's basically a Trump bashing and a Biden lifting up. It continues. This is how it ends. I won't go through all of it. It's, it's almost embarrassing how political a statement is. But then he goes through. This is how it ends, which I thought was interesting. Without swift and focused action, truly catastrophic events... Events that could end civilization as we know it are more likely. When the clock stands at 100 seconds to midnight, we are all threatened. The moment is both perilous and unsustainable, and the time to act is now. And, you know, you remember a few weeks back I shared with you that like 61% of young people are so scared, so scared of living in this world now that they're refusing to have children and they're refusing to, they feel like issue, these issues are affecting their lives on a daily basis. And don't get me wrong, I'm not demeaning there are real issues going on in the world, but one thing that just made me stood out about this is they claim to be using the image of the apocalypse. The apocalypse is from the Bible. And all of these apocalyptic scenarios that they envisage here, they're really just thinking of the apocalypse meaning the term global catastrophe, aren't they? A destruction of the world. However, as we studied in the first study, apocalypse does not mean global catastrophe. Apocalypse is a name of the book of the Bible. It means the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And the whole point of it is that these catastrophes are coming upon the world due to mankind's rejection and rebellion and sin against God. That's what it really means. So once again, as I've pointed out many times, Man likes to try and use the language of God, has the ideas of God, these perfect kingdoms, but yet they want to do it, as always, without the Messiah, without Jesus Christ. Just another classic example. However, they might be right about one thing. The day of man may soon be coming to an end, and we may be moving into a time called the day of the Lord. That is what we are studying in this period of Revelation, and that's what we're going to be looking at today. So as we've seen, the Lamb... The Messiah, Jesus Christ, breaking these seals, and progressively we've seen judgment coming forth on the earth. The first seal, that was the white horse, the arrival of this global political leader. The second seal was the red horse, this was the arrival of war on the earth. The third seal, the black horse, famine, and the fourth seal, the ashen or the pale horse, and that was death. These were the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as they are uh, commonly known in popular culture. Fifth seal, Last week we looked at, this was the martyrs, those people who died because of their allegiance to the word of God and, their te- and who were giving testimony to God by their lives and they were killed by this new world leader. Now we are going to look at the sixth seal. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 6, verse 12, please. It's only a few verses. We'll, re- we'll read the whole section to the end of the chapter. He says, I looked, and when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake... And the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their place. And then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us, from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So there's a lot in these verses. Now notice, first of all, again, it says, He broke the seal. He 
capitalized, referring to this lamb that was slain, that was at the center of the throne, referring to the lion of the tribe of Judah, referring to the only one who was worthy to break the seals. It is him again, and this shows us that these seals are unmistakably being directed and organized from heaven. They are acts of God, as we would call it. And with the breaking of this seal, we see what we call cosmic disturbances or celestial disturbances. Now, this is not unusual to the Bible. We find these things often talked about in the prophetic scriptures, and they are more often than not associated with a time of judgment or with the coming of the Messiah, the second coming of the Messiah. We have six specific things mentioned here in this verse. A great earthquake, the sun becoming black, moon becoming red, stars falling to the sky, the sky split apart and mountains moved out of their place. Now this is imagery that you'll find throughout the prophetic literature. Let me give you a couple of examples. The book of Haggai, Old Testament prophet, chapter 2, verse 6, verse 7, says this, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more in a little while I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Joel chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Joel is a very important book for studying these subjects. Before them the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord utters his voice before his army, surely his camp is great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, who can endure it? You can hopefully notice the references there from Revelation. For the great day of their wrath has come, who is able to stand? The day of the Lord is great and awesome, who can endure it? It's almost pretty much word for word quotation there. This is where, like I said, the book of Revelation, most of it is just themes from the Old Testament coming to their final fruition and completion. So we see so many quotations, over 500 references, over 800 allusions to the books of the Old Testament which is one of the reasons why we struggle, I think, to understand it, because we don't spend enough time in the Old Testament. But you can see here, this is where it's being drawn from. Now remember, just this is apocalyptic literature. Sometimes you do get very dramatic descriptions. doesn't mean they're not describing literal things that are happening, but that's just what we have. Also remember, this may be a description from Earth's perspective, as opposed to what people are seeing on the Earth from the first, uh, in the first century. So we don't know exactly how these things are going to play out. We, we understand what earthquakes are. We understand roughly that these things sometimes come with volcanic activity. We understand that we've seen many times earthquakes completely block out the sun. We understand there are astronomical conditions that can cause what they call blood moons. And I also understand that many prophecy teachers like people to chase blood moons across the world and they sell books with four blood moons and they make lots of money and get people very upset about various things. I'm not going to do that with you. I'm simply saying... Whether these are natural phenomena or not, God is in charge of natural phenomena. The fact that all of them converge with the opening of this seal obviously is clearly meant to imply that this is, again, an act of God. This is something that is happening here. You have to remember there's a point to celestial signs. You remember right back in the book of Genesis 1 verse 14. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. The celestial bodies were for signs, no one's quite sure what that means, but for seasons, for days and for years, we understand what that means. What this is really saying is that we have to see this as a demonstration that God is sovereign over the created order. 
This is a sign that the one who created all is the one who can cause all these things to happen. And obviously it's making a point that most of man's history, when they reject God, quite often what they replace that with is they worship the created order. Often the sun, often the stars, they have, you know, we still have it in our newspapers today. You can read things saying that the stars affect our lives and all these sorts of things. So it's making a very big point here, obviously, too, that God is the God of the created order. And again, remember, this is being drawn from the Old Testament. Let me read to you another text where I believe some of this is coming from. Isaiah chapter 13. Much comes from the book of Isaiah. It's a very important book. Isaiah chapter 13, verses 9 to 13 again about the day of the Lord. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, to exterminate sinners from it. From the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, the moon will not shed its light, and then I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity, and I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble, the earth will be shaken from its place, and the fear of the Lord in the day of his burning anger. Now understand this sort of language might be quite shocking to you if you've never heard of this before, and what we usually do is we start thinking about today's situation and how can these things happen today because surely there are innocent people around and people who still haven't heard the gospel and this sort of thing. I would just remind you, the day of the Lord is not this day anymore. As we've seen with the breaking of these seals, we've seen that the restraint of the Holy Spirit has been removed at this time. Evil is given its last and final attempt and full reign at this time. These are not people who do not know. These are people, it says, that have taken a stand against God specifically. They have chosen to follow the other side, the beast, as we call it in Revelation. This will play out much more as we go through Revelation. It's a very unusual, a very short time in history. It is, in fact, the final age of this history, the birth pangs or, or the extreme contractions that lead to the birth of the Messianic kingdom. It is those people that are usurping the earth. Remember the seals scroll of which these seals are a part of. Remember we argued that was the title deed to the, to the earth. Only a redeemer, a relative of mankind and of God, has the right to redeem back the earth, just like the Old Testament laws. That's why I spent all that time going through those land laws with you. Christ, the lamb that was slain as fully human and fully God, is the only one who has the right to do both of those things. That is what is going on here. As you study Revelation, always you've got to have that context in mind or else you'll be unnecessarily shocked and you won't know how to deal with these statements and where to place them when you're trying to look around the world in its current form as it is. This is an age of grace. This is an age of gospel proliferation across the world. The church is here. Our message, message is to be ambassadors to spread the gospel. This time we're looking at called the Day of the Lord is not like that. This is different. It's the final time. So just remember that as we go through. Verse 15, then the kings of the earth, this is back in Revelation now, the kings of the earth, the great men, the commanders and the rich and the strong, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves among the rocks and the mountains. They said to the mountains, to the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The kings of the earth, so it goes through this list. It's kind of covering all classes of men here. Kings of the earth, the great, the rich, the strong, even the slave and the free men. Now I like this, the kings of the earth, I believe is referencing Psalm 2. We've studied this, we went through Psalms on Wednesday nights a while back, it was a long time ago since we did Psalm 2, but let me remind you, it starts off, it's a very messianic psalm. 
It starts off like this. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take their counsel against the Lord and his anointed. So this is a prophetic picture of the kings and rulers of the earth who take their stand against not only the Lord, but it also says his anointed. And that's referring to the, the Messiah, the anointed one, the servant of Yahweh, Jesus Christ here. Of course, the Psalms written long before Jesus was on this world. It goes on. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment, take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence, rejoice with trembling, do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So tying that up with what we're reading in Revelation, we are now reading about those particular rulers and kings who did not heed that advice. They do not worship or pay homage to the Son at this point, and they are in fact taking their stand against the Lord and his anointed at this point. That is what the day of the Lord is about. That is what these people... The same ones we see gathered at the Battle of Armageddon. When we get to Revelation 16, we're going to see that these people actually take their stand in a knowing confrontation with the Lord. That's how deep rebellion goes. You, you've probably heard the, that old uh, pastoral expression, sin will take you further than you ever want to go, cost you more than it, or you ever thought it would cost you. Those, oh, I forget the whole thing. You, I'm sure you've heard it if you've been in church long enough. This is really the ultimate demonstration of that. This rejection of God ultimately has led them to the point where they're having to stand against God in confrontation like this, in, in the actual final wrapping up of history. It's quite unbelievable, really. But at this point, the sixth seal is broken, cosmic signs happen, and for those sort of brief moments, we have this time where fear strikes the earth. These kings hide themselves in the cave. And remember, as we looked at on Wednesday night in Isaiah, studying a very similar passage that I will look at again in a moment, Hiding yourself from God is what sin does. It, it, it's referencing right back to the very first sin, the thing that started all of this trouble off in the good book of Genesis. What did Adam and Eve do once they'd sinned, once the first sin happened on this earth? It says the Lord was walking in the garden, and it says they hid themselves from the Lord. It's exactly the same thing here just as it was with the very first sin, we're going to see that come to completion now with the very last sin. Once again, sin deceives man that they think they can hide from an omnipotent God. And this is the kind of attitude that we have here. This is what sin does to us, the same as it was right at the beginning. This is why Genesis and Revelation are often linked so many times. What you see start in Genesis, you see completed in Revelation. We see the curse in Genesis 3. By the end of Revelation, we see a world with no more curse. You see sin, you see the atonement for sin. On and on it goes. We looked at that in our very first study in Revelation. So let's look at the little last phrase there. It says, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb. Now that's almost a contradiction, isn't it? Because the imagery that we get from a Lamb is not one that's particularly scary or dangerous or fear, will strike fear into mankind. And this is obviously done on purpose. It's reminding us of chapters 4 and 5. Remember, as we study the book of Revelation, chapter, there's no such thing as chapters in the original Bible, as I keep reminding you, and often, because we have to stop every Sunday and we come back to it, 
the th kind of ruins your train of thought. Remember, these things are all continuous. Chapters 4 and 5, we saw the lamb as it was slain, picturing back to the, the, the lamb that was sacrificed. It's again a reference to Isaiah 53, the one who was oppressed and afflicted, the one who did not open his mouth, a lamb that was led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, he did not open his mouth. That's the lamb. But you remember in Revelation 5, we saw that it wasn't only the lamb who was worthy to break the seal. We saw another title of this lamb, and that was the lion. The lion of Judah, the lion and the lamb together. Both of these uh, images are conjured up by this expression that we have here, the wrath of the lamb. The one who died for us is now the one who's coming back to take back this earth. He is the one returning in judgment. And then in verse 17 it says, For the great day of their wrath has come. There is an acknowledgement now at this point, after the first five seals with this sixth seal, even by unrepentant mankind, that the hand of God is being shown in the earth. And this is quite serious. Now, I want to pause here for a little bit. I said I'm going to get into some theological issues. Obviously, part of the way we teach is we go through the Bible and we interpret it. We teach it to you verse by verse. And th quite often, that's just what we do. Sometimes, though, also, it's helpful for me to explain why I don't believe certain things that maybe other people in the church do. And that's what I want to try and do with you a little bit this morning. Because this text is such a controversial text in... in the field of end times or eschatological studies. And the reason why is because it's pivotal about the timing of the rapture and the nature of the tribulation. So the time that the rapture being the, the gathering of the saints to Jesus Christ and the tribulation being the day of the Lord. So let me sketch out the issues for you. I'll need you all to stay with me here because I'm going to be describing firstly my view and then I'll be describing a view that I, I, I don't hold. I'll just say... I'm describing variations within views that are all broadly of the same perspective, if you understand what I mean. So th these are not really massive opposing views. This, this is the areas where we can have room for valid disagreements in the way that we understand the text, but we still have the broad scheme of how we understand revelation is not really affected huge amounts, but you'll see as we go through. So you've heard me keep mentioning this phrase, the day of the Lord, yes? The day of the Lord. Sometimes the tribulation sometimes the 70th week of Daniel. All of these I use interchangeably for this time, the day of the Lord. It is always pretty much characterized as a time of God's wrath. We've seen that, we've seen that in Revelation. Now what I've been teaching is that it begins with the breaking of the first seal, when we studied and we saw the white of the four horsemen coming, and it progressively gets worse leading up to the second advent of Jesus Christ. So that's the day of the Lord, okay? <laughs> now, you've also heard, we did a study on it on Wednesday night, and we mentioned it briefly back earlier on in this study, the view of the gathering of the saints known as pre-tribulation argues that the church-age believers are not destined to suffer the wrath of God for sin, the wrath of God for sin. Instead, we are placed under the blood of the Lamb, we are made to be his bride, and therefore we are not present when the day of the Lord's wrath begins. This is why people get so, people like to debate this issue because that's a much debated topic. Therefore, this view says, my view says, we are gathered to be with the Lord before the day of the Lord, the tribulation starts, hence the name pre-tribulational. It's before the, the day of the Lord starts. Now there is another view in the church and it's a very good view. I, I don't dismiss it lightly. They have some very strong arguments 
with most people who hold this view, I agree with them on most not all things except this particular argument. And it's called the pre-wrath view. The name's a bit confusing because we're all pre-wrath in that sense, but let me explain it to you. So their argument is that the day of the Lord, the tribulation, the wrath of God, does not start with the first seal, the breaking of the first seal. They say that it starts here with the sixth seal, or actually they say it starts with the seventh seal, and the sixth seal here is, is like a warning to the world that it's about to start. So that's their brief argument. So the first five seals, they say, are in fact not the wrath of God. Stay with me here, this is, very, this is crucial. So I said that the wrath of God, the day of the Lord, starts from the first seal to the second coming. They are saying that actually the, the day of the Lord starts with the seventh seal to the second coming, and therefore the first five seals that we've looked at and studied already are not the wrath of God, and, that, and they would argue that they are the wrath of man and they are the wrath of Satan. That is called the pre-wrath view. And because of that, where their rapture view is different, because the rapture... They agree that the church is not destined for the wrath of God for sin, but they have just, their argument is that the wrath of God is only just about to be poured up. So they place the rapture in between the sixth and the seventh seal. That's roughly where they do it. And therefore they have to say the first five seals are not the wrath of God. And thus the church is here for the first five seals. You see, that's their argument. And that, that's roughly how it goes. And their strongest argument that they have which is the one that causes all the confusion, comes from the book of Joel, chapter 2. And I'll show you, show you why. Let's just read it, and then hopefully you'll see why people do hold this view. This is Joel talking about the day of the Lord. He says, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon into blood. Obviously, they read that description, and they make the association with the sixth seal like we've just read. And the, but then they read this. This will all happen before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So this is where all the trouble comes. Remember, I'm saying that the day of the Lord's already arrived, and they're saying that these cosmic signs are going to happen before the day of the Lord. So therefore, the day of the Lord must start after with the seventh seal and onwards. And if you just take those two verses it's pretty conclusive argument. Like, it's quite a strong argument that they have there. It does seem to very clearly say that the day of the Lord starts after these cosmic signs. So we'll leave that for the moment. I want to give you a few more of their arguments, and then I'll go through and tell you why I rebut them. And hopefully that'll be instructive for you. So a few other things. They argue the little phrase where it says back in Revelation, for the great day of their wrath has come. Now, they take that, the verb in Greek there, to be a future arrival. So they would say the signs happen with the sixth seal, the world cries out, the, the, day of, the day of the Lord's wrath has come, as in it's just about to begin, this is it now, this is the final thing. That's also how they argue for that. Now, now I don't want to dismiss this argument, like I said, it, it actually requires a little bit more thinking than some of the other arguments that you can dismiss, but just remember... We love the Lord, Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind. Sometimes we do have to really wrestle with the text and get into these issues, and it, it always benefits you when you do that. Now, I would say, ultimately, although there's a lot of these arguments are quite good in some respects, they ultimately end up making too much of the similarities 
and ignore the differences between the language that is used in the Bible to describe the day of the Lord. Let me go through and hopefully I'll make that clear to you. Let me give you a few preliminary arguments against why I don't hold this view and the problems that this view creates, and then I'll deal with that specific passage in Joel that seems to cause a lot of problems. So the first five seals, they argue that they are not the wrath of God, and usually they'll come up and say something similar that these are just natural occurrences that we've seen throughout all of history, wars and famines, and and there's a half-truth to that. We do see all those sorts of things, remember, through history, but remember, like I said, I, I gave you examples of those things only to show you, to give you a hint of what this final days will be like, At this stage, these things are not going to be normal as we've seen through history. They're going to be far, 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 far more than we've ever seen in history, more than anything that's ever happened on this world. So to try and downplay the first five seals, I believe, actually downplays the first half of the book of Revelation. The whole, the fourth and fifth chapter of Revelation, the significance of the Lamb who was seated, standing to his feet, tells us that the Lord is now standing to judge. He is standing up to start acting in that way again that he hasn't been doing through the previous age in such a direct way. It indicates that something very different is happening, and then he breaks the seals, and it is him who initiates the judgments with the seals. So that, again, I find as being a problem for the pre-wrath view. We saw that the horsemen, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as they called the first four seals, they were in fact called forth from heaven with the, with the command, come. Do you remember we looked at that? Come. So again, this was being directed from the heavenly throne room. So while I do agree that during those seals, you do see man's rebellion in its fullness, you do see the wrath of Satan on this earth, ultimately it is more than that. It is the beginning of the judgments of God. That's what I would argue anyway. And this conclusion is also confirmed in another way. Remember, as I keep reminding you, Revelation is constantly, constantly drawing upon Old Testament passages. There's there's almost nothing in Revelation except the final chapters of the second coming and the new heavens and new earth that are not in the Old Testament somewhere. Do you remember when we looked at the fourth seal? Let's read it again together. So this was the fourth seal, Revelation 6, verse 8. Remember, I'm trying to argue here that these are direct judgments of God and thus can be classified as the wrath of God and thus the church is exempt from them, as opposed to the other view that says they're not. Verse 8, I looked and behold an ashen horse. He who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with famine, with pestilence, and by the wild beasts of the earth. The significance of those four things is lost on many, but as I said, these are couplets of judgments that we find numerous times throughout the Old Testament. So I'll give you one example just for the sake of time, but there are multiple ones. This is from Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 15 to 17. I want you to look at the language. So it will be a reproach, a reviling, a warning, and an object of horror to the nations who surround you when I execute judgments against you in anger and wrath. And then he goes on. Moreover, I will send on you famine, wild beasts, they will bereave you of children, plague and bloodshed will also pass through, and I will bring the sword on you, I, the Lord, have spoken. So these four particular things that we see are specifically said to be the wrath of God. And thus, when we see the fourth seal, God doing exactly the same thing, using the same language, referencing the same text, it's a good conclusion to take that these are once again the wrath 
of God. That seems a much more obvious conclusion from the text, and the, the burden of proof is on those who claim they are not the wrath of God to actually provide an argument that they are not, and I don't think they do that. So that's one other way. Another issue with this. Do you remember the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5? He said that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night while people are saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon them. That means basically that it will come unexpectedly to a, a, a world that is not looking for the things of God. Now, if the cosmic signs of seal 6 are a warning to the world that the wrath of God is about to come, then that contradicts what Paul is saying. So you have another issue there that is just causes the view causes a lot more problems sometimes than it solves. Let's go back to verse 17. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Remember I, I told you that one of their strong arguments that they believe is that this is a verb referring to a future tense thing that is about to arrive, whereas others argue that it's talking about everything that has gone before it, leading to the realisation that they're in the wrath of God. Now, technically, it's a little difficult. I won't go into the, the technical details, but ultimately, both are actually correct. The Greek can be taken as a future or as a past in that respect, as languages are often more flexible than sometimes we have in English with their tenses. What you have to do when you get a situation like that is you, you look for context. The context of the passage will tell you how it's supposed to be taken, and thus, with Revelation, it makes a good study to look at how this, this phrase has come is talked about in the entire book of Revelation. It's used 11 times in the book of Revelation, and not once is it used of a future event. At best, it's used of an event that has imminently arrived, and most times it's something in the past. So again, the burden of proof, I say, is on them to prove that that's the way it's being used. Now, another way that we can argue against this, I'll only do a couple more of these, and hopefully you'll get the point, and we'll deal with that Joel passage. We read about men hiding in the caves from the presence of the, the Lamb. Now, if you were with us on Wednesday, we studied Isaiah chapter 2, which I believe is the, the reference that's being made here. It's a passage in Isaiah that's talking about the same time period. Let me read it to you. Isaiah 2, verse 17 to 21. The pride of man will be humbled, the loftiness of men will be abased, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Notice the phrase, in that day. That's referring to the day of the Lord. The idols will vanish. Men will go into caves of the rocks, the holes of the ground, before the terror of the Lord, the splendor of his majesty, when he arises to make the earth tremble. Verse 22, in order to go into the caves of the rocks, the clefts of the cliffs, before the terror of the Lord, when he arises to make the earth tremble. So Isaiah clearly says that this event, when the wrath of the Lord is revealed and men are hiding in the caves, is in the day of the Lord. He says clearly it's in that day. He doesn't say it's the day is about to happen. So clearly, I would say, the sixth seal is clearly said to be in the day of the Lord already. It's not an announcement that the day of the Lord is about to come. I find that a hard argument for them to get around. Now, let's just remind you, before we deal with the Joel passage, the day of the Lord is a special period of intervention into the world by God to judge. That's what a day of the Lord is. Historically, we've seen other times in the Bible in the past that are called the day of the Lord, with Babylon and the captivity, Assyria and the captivity in these times like that, but ultimately they lead to this future day of the Lord that we're studying in Revelation. Now, the, the difficulty with the Joel text is it says that this happens before the day of the Lord, remember. Now, try and stay with me here. 
Day of the Lord is one of these terms that's used a couple of different ways in the Bible, and this is where the confusion comes. It's used in both a broad sense and it's used in a narrow sense. So what, what I basically mean by that is, like we would say, if someone said we're in the last days, and then someone, we obviously understand from that that there is a last day of the last days. At some point, the last days have to lead to the very final last day. So that's the broad sense and then the narrow sense. The day of the Lord is the same sort of concept. You have a broad sense where the day of the Lord is, is an intervention into history and it involves the time of wrath. And then quite often in the Bible, it's also talked about including the time of blessing that follows afterwards, the pattern that we keep seeing. Day of the Lord, wrath it leads to blessing. Now let me just show you this in Scripture. Just one place, there's many, but this I'll just do one. It's important that you see this. And this is from the book of Joel also. This is Joel chapter 3. He says, Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon grow dark. The stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion, utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. And in that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine, the hills will flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water. So within that one passage that are both described as being in the day, you have the, the judgment and you also have in the time when the Lord comes and he's ruling from Jerusalem and the blessing. That's the broad sense that it's being used out there. Now there is the narrow sense, like I said, the last day of the last days, the actual day of the Lord in the day of the Lord. And that is usually spoken of slightly differently. It's called the great and terrible day of the Lord as opposed to just the day of the Lord. Now this is where the misunderstanding comes because most people don't sort of understand the Jewish background to Revelation. The great and terrible day of the Lord is a Jewish phrase. You can find it. Here's just one example that I, that I, that I pulled out. This is from the, the Babylonian Talmud. This is tractate 188 referring to the, a prophecy in Malachi and referring to the phrase the great and terrible day of the Lord. It says this is understood to refer to the advent of Messiah. So the great and terrible day of the Lord is referencing that specific 24 hour, that day when he actually comes to rule from Jerusalem, as opposed to the broader period of divine judgment. You, you with me with that? You understand what I'm, what I'm getting? That, that's the way that the, the Jewish writers used this phrase. So what actually the Joel text is saying when it says there are signs before the great and terrible day of the Lord it's not saying that the day of the Lord in the broad sense hasn't started and therefore the church is still on the earth, the first five seals are not the wrath of God. What it's saying is that there will be cosmic signs to the earth before the second, well, the final day, that last day of the last day of the Lord. And we know that there is the sixth seal, there are also four or five other events of cosmic disturbances that we will see through Revelation. So when you understand it like that, the text really presents no problem to the pre-tribulation view at all. I would say it presents more problems to, to the pre-wrath view. And therefore, for those reasons, as good as some of those arguments may be, I don't think they have the weight to stand uh, when you examine them against the scriptures like that. Now, just to finish, let's look at one more little phrase that I haven't talked about. The great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? It's a good question. In the context, no one is able to stand. We are actually going to see one particular group in the chapter 7 who are able to stand because they're, they're sealed Jewish evangelists who are sealed for this period, but that's for next week. Let me make an application for today. 
Now, we won't, won't be here for the day of the Lord in this sense. We might not even enter this time of history just simply because we don't know an exact time for when it starts. But let us make application. One day, we can be very certain all of us will stand before the Lord. So we ask that same question. Who is able to stand before the Lord? You see, nothing you can bring will absolve you from your sins, from the way you've lived without God, broken God's law, that you have brought condemnation upon yourself. No amount of good works, it doesn't matter if you're the nicest person in the world, you do not have the qualifications to enter into his presence for eternity. Who can stand? No one can stand. To do that, you must be completely sinless and you must be holy, 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 totally righteous. And the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, the question remains, who can stand? No one can stand. But the question that we then have to ask is we all claim that we will stand in front of the Lord, not for judgment, but to enter his kingdom with him. So how is it we got from that state to this state? How do we stand, in fact, in front of the Lord? And this is the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The grace of God has solved that problem for us. I want to read to you a couple of passages and notice the phrase. It's very similar to Revelation. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Having been justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. That's how we stand, in the grace of God. Who is able to stand? Only those who are in the grace of God. Where do we find the grace of God? In the gospel of Jesus Christ. The clearest expression of the gospel comes from the pen of the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 15. He introduces it like this. I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, and then he says this, in which also you stand. That's it. That's what we stand. Nothing else except the gospel. He then goes on, by which you are also saved. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That is how we stand in front of a holy and righteous God. We have to understand the unveiling of Jesus Christ and everything that that goes with it. The lamb that was slain, that came, died for our sins, introduced us into that grace by repentance and by faith. We can stand in the grace of God and thus we can answer the question, who will stand? Those who are in the grace of God. And the question that then we have to ask ourselves is where are you today? Do you stand in the grace of God? Are you secure? Can you claim the promise of Paul that says, for God has not destined us to wrath, but for obtaining salvation through Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will be together with him. Therefore, encourage one another, brethren, with these words. If you stand in the grace of God, if you accept the gospel, if you understand that the Lamb died for your sins, you repent and believe, trust him in faith, and believe that he was resurrected and he is one day coming back, you will stand and you are not destined for the wrath of God. That is the promise of the glorious gospel. So when we think about things like the doomsday clock, it should spur us on to really tell this to the world, which is the very purpose that the church exists. Amen? You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.